we have got some dear friends back in the house with us this morning. Um, Alan and Diane are with us. Good morning. Um, and uh, these are real, real friends of Oasis Church. Um, been with us, uh, in fact, some of us, um, most of our lives. Um, and uh, but um, but it's it's brilliant to get to do life long term with people, and you get to do that with certain people through your life, don't you? But um, it's great that we've got Alan and Diane with us. And uh, so, Alan, you are going to come and share this morning. It's been a little while since you've spoken. And um, which I think we worked out the other day, didn't we? It's been too long either way. So, uh, welcome. Good to see you. <laughs> wow, how are you all doing? I'll probably do, don't I? Do you want me to hold it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so good to see you all. Yeah, so it's um, four, just over four years, I think, since we've been here. Um, a number of things have happened since then, <laughs> to all of us, haven't they? So um, I just want to bring a word that I had um, uh, this morning. I just wanted to uh, share with you um, what I do generally in, in the morning, is just ask God, you know, what am I doing today? Uh, you know I don't know what I'm talking about, don't you, Lord? And he says, yeah, I know that, Alan, but you're with me, so it's okay. You know, it, it, I, I get a lot of that. Um, which is great, because actually then I know that God's going to speak. So I got this word about being a base camp. Um, so I, I got a sense, I've not been here before, and I had a walk around. Um, I got a sense that you're a base camp. Now, now a base camp is a place where uh, you get resources, you uh, put resources, but you also send resources. Um, and if you're in the mountaineering world, you'll know that the base camp is actually a very important place to, a very strategic place, to um, start the program of climbing. Um, so I get a real sense that this is a base camp and that you're supposed to be drawing in resources but also sending out resources um, uh, into the environment. Um, here's the thing about a base camp is, after a while, when you've been climbing, you create another base camp, a second camp, um, higher up. And I get a sense that that's what's going on here. So there's a sense in which um, God is creating this environment for you so that you can become a base camp in order to uh, grow into the next thing. Is that exciting or is it exciting? Um, Debbie, I've got a word for you and it, it's, uh, it was your shoes that I picked up. Uh, just do it. Just do it. And there's a sense in which we're sending... We? Oh, did you hear what I just did then? Um, yeah, I'll say it again. We're sending you. And we're sending you for a reason. We're sending you so that you can be resourced. You can be the resource for what's going on. But also you come back with ideas. You come back with a sense of purpose and a sense of expectation. And, and here's the thing about church. If you don't have expectation, then you just come on a Sunday. Is salvation the end of the story? For some people in here, it will be the beginning of the story. You know, if you're not saved, then you need Jesus in your life. And as he comes into your life, it's the beginning of a story. But it's not the end of the story. That's not, it's not fire insurance, folks. I'll say it again. Christianity is not fire insurance. It's actually a, an opportunity for you to do what God wants you to do. 
So I often say, you know, people walking into the church kind of wondering what's going on. Actually, they're here for a reason. And they're here because they've got something that we need. And God knows that. He knows that opportunity is, uh, is open for us. So for those of you that don't know me, um, we were here once. Uh, we're not here in, physically in this building, but we were part of you uh, back in uh, 2007. Thank you, Diane. I've always, um, I, if I'm on my own, I just think of a number. But if Diane's here, I have to ask <laughs> what year it was. Was it really 2007? My goodness. That's a little while ago, isn't it? So you were in um, the uh, grammar school at the time, Kegs, um, and we uh, planted back into Brentwood. And there's a story attached to that. I won't go into that. But basically what happened was um, I, I was asking God, because I'd retired at that moment as a head teacher of a primary, and I was asking God, do you want me to lead this church? Do you want me to lead this church? And I kept asking him, and guess what he said? Nothing. It's really frustrating, isn't it, when he does that? He said nothing. And then one day he said this to me, Alan, I want you to be my son. And I went, well, I am your son. You know, you're, you're my father. I love you. And look at all the stuff I get to do. You know, look at all that's going on and, and all that I've enjoyed with you. And he says, yeah, but you haven't been my son. And then he reminded me that my father died when I was 18. And he said, do you remember the pats on the back you got, Alan? When at the funeral, people were coming out, family were coming up to me and saying, you're the eldest son, Alan. Your responsibility now. Look after the family. And I did. I can honestly say to you, I did. But I missed the opportunity of having a father as an adult. Does that make sense? So he was a great dad. He was a great dad. Um, and we got lots of things um, that we enjoyed doing, but um, as, a, as a child. And I was just beginning to get to know him. He used to take me down to university on a, um, uh, on a Monday morning or a Sunday night uh, down to Southampton. And we, on the drive, we'd learn so much more about each other. And then it got taken away from me. And see, I didn't know the pain that had caused because I'd put it to one side. Don't we all do that? We put it to one side and we think it's okay. And then God brings it back into the forefront of what we're doing. So that's a little bit of my story and that's kind of how I got to be where I am. Um, because I thought, well, okay, I, I can father people then. Because that, once you learn what it's like to be a son, you can learn what it's like to be a spiritual father and it's not an age thing by the way so if you're young in the room uh, and you think I can't be a father yes you can yes you can you can be a spiritual dad to people so um, I uh, ended up going to the supernatural school over in Kent um, with a guy called Pete Carter who was leading the North Kent Community Church church of about 200 250 people um, and uh, we joined their evening school. Diane and I joined the evening school, went every other Wednesday. How many people know of and have been to the evening school? There's a few in the room, yeah. So the evening school is a kind of, what does it look like when you move into the supernatural in a natural way? 
What's it like to be praying in tongues 24-7? Wow, that sounds like fun out there, doesn't it? <laughs> so what does it feel like when that starts to happen to you? And you become naturally supernatural. And you walk into Sainsbury's and you see somebody in front of you and they're, uh, and they're holding their back like this. And you say, excuse me, um, I'm a Christian. I just believe God can heal today. Is it okay if I pray for you? And guess what they say? <laughs> Look at your face. <laughs> kind of sums it up, doesn't it? What, but what do they say? They say, yes, please, because they're in pain, aren't they? And then something supernatural happens. Why don't you try it, Oasis Church? Why don't you try it? Am I scaring you now? Good. See, if you, if you come and be comfortable... And you leave and you're comfortable. I've not done my job. My job is to challenge you. To move you on into something supernatural. And uh, I can tell you a couple of stories and I probably will in a minute. So the big idea. We've got a big idea. It's okay to disagree with someone over interpretation. It's not okay to be disagreeable. So for many years, Christians have divided over disagreement. This is a, a, a no-go area, right? Because we know this has happened. Um, how, how many uh, new churches have been in operation in the last 60 days in the UK? You'd be surprised. So there's always this splitting and joining over disagreement. And it's not okay. The churches I'm connected to and speak to are transitioning from this pastoral model where, you know, we all sit in comfortably and sing Kumbaya. You are allowed to laugh, and please do laugh because it helps me. Kumbaya, you know, Kumbaya, don't you? Yeah. Um, it's just a, a symbol of kind of all being comfy together. But it's not supposed to be comfy. This place, as I said to you just now, it's a resource camp. It's a base camp. It's where you come to learn what it looks like to get your mission to go out there. So Martin's been out overnight, got in about 3 o'clock this morning. What was he doing? Bigging it up in the pub. No. <laughs> what he was doing, he used to do No, no. What he was doing, we go back a long way. What he was doing was doing the street pastor's work. What do street pastors do? They take the love of Jesus out into the world, don't they? And there's lots of examples of that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So we get caught up in this idea that we're supposed to agree. And the churches, as I said, um, are trying to kind of mush, push in on that. God says, I'm about to pour a revelation on this generation. And that's all of us, folks. That's even me, even old me. We are part of this generation, aren't we? So he says this, he says, I'm about to pour revelation on this generation. It's been held in the vaults of heaven from the eons of ages. Even angels long to look into the revelation that I'm about to release to this generation. But if I release this revelation on a wineskin that gathers around agreement and divides over disagreement, then the wineskin will split. You see, the reason why they gather is because they agree. And I'm moving you on. This is still God speaking. I'm moving you on from that to apostleship, where people gather around families. What are we singing about this morning? We're part of a family. 
And sometimes families don't get on. Did you know that? It's a revelation to some, but not to us. So our daughter left church three years ago, was it? Five years ago. Five years ago, she walked out of church over a disagreement. And she's not been back. Now, she seems to have abandoned God. Has God abandoned her? No. So we know and we have hope. But we haven't disagreed and split. She's still my daughter, and she'll always be my daughter. I had a three o'clock moment in the depths of this disagreement, and God said to me at three o'clock in the morning, go downstairs, go to the freezer, and get a frozen chicken out of the freezer. I went, what? Three o'clock in the morning? He said, just do it. So that's what I did. Just do it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. There's a theme going on, isn't there? So I dutifully go downstairs, get the frozen chicken out of the uh, freezer, go back to bed. Don't really think much more about it. Um, I wake up again, I don't know, about 7 o'clock, something like that, and God says, send a text to Julia and say, uh, I've got a chicken out of the freezer, do you fancy coming for lunch? And that's exactly what I wrote. She wrote two words, love to. And that was the beginning of something new for us, a connection that we've never let go of. We're connected to, to her in ways that we didn't have before. So it's actually an improvement. Isn't that interesting? So it's really interesting when you look around and you say, oh, look, there's this person, there's that person, there's that person that I know and have known for years. This fella I took, used to take across the road uh, to the um, children's work, which is across the road, if you remember, and I was Uncle Al. And he'd ask me all sorts of questions about leadership in the church. He was about eight. I knew there was something on him right back then. But I've always been his Uncle Al. That's how it is, isn't it? That's family. That's family. Remember Martin Merrill used to show up every time we cooked a chicken. I have no idea how he did that. <laughs> We've got the chicken cooking... And I used to say, you know what, Martin would be at the door any minute. And sure enough, there he was. Still does it, absolutely. Still does it. It's a great expertise, isn't it? So there we are. And some of us are a bit crazy and some of us are a bit weird. But the reason um, why we're gathering isn't because we agree, but because we're a family. Because we're a family. See, if the church gathers when it agrees and divides when it disagrees... What am I going to do? Actually, what am I going to do to make sure they don't disagree? So what does it take to have a disagreement? An opinion. What does it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do I have to make sure they don't do? Think. So I teach people what to think, but I don't teach people how to think. So the preaching in that church is to convince instead of preaching to inspire. Preaching should inspire you. Ever wonder why the greatest inventions, the greatest innovations, the greatest art, music, everything creative isn't coming out of the church? I'll tell you why. We've taught people to agree, not to think creatively. 
So what I'm about to talk about, you don't have to agree with. Isn't that good? And it won't change our relationship because I stand in heaven next to you, Paul, next to you, and we stand side by side because we're brothers. We're brothers in Christ. We're equal. I've got the mic today, but we're equal in the sight of God. And that's really, really important for you to understand so that you create um, the thoughts of family around you. So in apostleships, we create structures and cultures that allow people to be in family relationships where we can disagree, as long as we're not disagreeable. Does that make sense? As long as we're not disagreeable. So in these new church cultures, relationship trumps disagreement. And I encourage you folks. So... I come from Eastgate, I, I work over there now, uh, two or three days a week, um, and I uh, do some stuff with Pete Carter over at Eastgate, and we worship there too on a Sunday. And we go there because there's a relationship building. They're into restoration and regeneration. Ebbsfleet Garden City, 15,000 new homes being built on mostly disused industrial land. A new primary school being built right opposite our building. You've got King's Primary, haven't you, just down the road here. Are we connected to them? If we're not, let's get connected. Because you know what? They'll open their doors to you because you have something they need. Do you know what it's called? In, in education parlance, it's called um, cohesion. Community cohesion, it's called. And you have to write a document. I used to be a head teacher, so I know this stuff. Um, you have to write a document about what are you doing about community cohesion. So when a church shows up and says, we'd love to come and help you, they go, come on. And then they write in their form, we've got community cohesion because we're working with a church that's just opposite us, part of the community. Ooh, tick that box. Are we doing that sort of stuff? Here's some good news. So last year... I think it was October time. Uh, Pete Carter, the, the leader, as I told you, is a GP or was a GP. He's retired now. Um, and he went to the CCG, the Clinical Commissioning Group in North Kent, and he said, um, what if I were to show you a way where we could save the NHS millions of pounds? Guess what they did? They listened, right? <laughs> so there's 100 GPs sitting in this room and Pete said, we are seeing healings that are beyond anybody's understanding on a weekly basis. We've got a weekly healing center where people come in. We've got very strict rules about who prays for who and the confidentiality, etc. I know what I'm doing. I've done it according to NHS guidelines. So what I'm saying to you folks is, why don't you offer that as an alternative like you do with Reiki and and uh, crystals and all the rest of the stuff, why don't you offer it as an alternative? And they said, yes. Big, big round of applause. No golf club claps in here, please. So celebrations all round, right? Because then on a brochure that these GPs give to their folk in pain is an alternative. And... Uh, that became very interesting news. He was at a conference in November and he spoke about this and a guy came up to him and he said, 
Um, I'm a director of uh, God TV. I think you've got a story to tell. So Pete said, oh, we need to talk to our media team. We've got a media team there. So, and the media team is headed up by a guy who runs Google, or did, used to run the Google media stuff. Uh, so he's very good at what he does. And he's become um, uh, part-time, four days, isn't it, I think? He does for us uh, in, in the media team. So he sent this guy, this God TV um, guy, one of um, his, his clips that we've done. And I want to show it if... The, where's the media people? I don't know. Oh, there you are. I'm looking too far back. I'm looking at the tea and coffee thinking, oh, must be tea time. No, not yet. So we're going to run this little um, clip. It's about a guy called Luke. Not a bad little story, eh? Ha <laughs> Oh, come on, guys. There's something on this. So I was praying for that lad. Uh, it was a couple of summers ago. And he came in with his mum. His mum was, um, was very attentive to him. And I immediately saw in the spirit that she had fear that she was uh, putting upon him. So we did, we're very good at this. We separated them. So she got some prayer for what was going on in her life. And we got to pray with Luke. And I didn't know any of this story. I just prayed for fear to leave him. I remember it very clearly. Fear, be gone out of him in Jesus' name. And something happened to him. And he said, I feel that I want to um, take communion. I knew none of this. If I'd have known it, probably would have entered into the fear myself, wouldn't I? Do I want to kill this kid? Probably not, you know. <laughs> but I didn't know any of that. And that's the joy of these things. So I, I just want to encourage you. This is over in Kent. It's, you know, up, what is it, 40 miles from here, something like that. And, and here's, my, here's my challenge for you guys today. Why not you? Why not us? Why not now? And why not here? Why not? Same God. It's our expectation, isn't it? It's our expectation. Right, now let me talk a little bit about the nature of sonship. Um, I wanted to just uh, kind of quickly um, push you through this because it is a, a, a way of thinking differently. Um, if you've done the Supernatural School, you might have heard of this book. Um, a, a guy called uh, Kenneth Bailey, or Ken Bailey, who wrote um, New Testament in a contextual light. Um, one of his books is called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. So how many of you know that if you read the Bible and you enter in, you can get a lot more out of the story? And we're looking for revelation, aren't we? Are we a revelation church? We have to be. If you're singing and going to heaven, the way we did with Joe Fletcher and co. this morning, you have to understand that we are the people bringing heaven to earth. That's our job. That's what we do. And one of the things you can do is if you go into the scripture and you read it, and you read it through Middle Eastern eyes, it makes a big difference. Now, I'm going to run out of time a little bit, but I'm going to, still going to go ahead uh, and, and run it. Um, here's what I want to call it. And, and uh, God gave it to me while Joe Fletcher was singing right at the end there. You, and, and it's about sonship. Do you know what I want to call it? I want to call it, My Daddy Loves Me. Just, just reflect on that for a moment, would you? My daddy loves me. 
my spiritual, eternal father. I can call daddy and he loves me. So thanks, Joe, for taking us to heaven this morning and, of course, your team with you um, as well. So Luke 15, 11 to 32 is now a legal meeting because I've just mentioned the scripture. Um, but it took me that long to get there. Um, and it's the parable of the lost son, isn't it? But how about we call it, my daddy loves me. Because that's what this story is about. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So it's a story, it's not what re- really happened. The younger one said to the father, uh, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How much of my father's... um, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father said, off you go then. No, he didn't. He said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. And there's a bit about the elder brother, which I'll not um, do for the moment. So here's that passage. It's used regularly, isn't it, um, to kind of reflect and describe and explain the nature of the prodigal, spending money and using resources rashly. Let me suggest to you that another way of looking at this parable is that of the good, good father. We're going to look at what the father did when the son returned. So let me refer you back to this work of Kenneth Bailey, who studies this New Testament in a contextual light. So he says this, A respected man was blessed with two sons. One day his younger son says to him, Father, give me the share of the property coming to me. Now what the father should have said in the culture of the day, uh, and actually the culture of today too probably, um, what expletives, I'm as good as dead to you, you wish me to die, have you no sense of shame, son? You have an obligation as the younger son to stay home and, stay, and take care of me and your mother. Nobody insults my honor like that. You have ruined our family name. You want me dead. I pronounce you dead and out of the family. Now, that's what all the village bystanders expected of him. And actually, in the culture even today, we would expect that, wouldn't we? We would. Honestly, we would. Instead, the father quietly gathers all the title documents from the house. Not to disown his son by taking away his inheritance, but to give him a third of everything. So the older brother got double portion because he's financially responsible for the family. Uh, In so doing, the father willingly bore shame upon himself. He knew the whole village was gossiping about him, and he endured public disgrace to maintain relationship with his son. 
You see, if he's going to sell his land, and he's a landowner in that village, who's he going to sell it to? Who's he going to sell it to? There isn't a Jewish family in that village that will buy that land. So who did he sell it to? He sold it to a Gentile. Now, it doesn't say that in the story, but if you're viewing it through Middle Eastern eyes, that's the only conclusion you can come to. So the younger son goes out, and he's, uh, the, so the father goes out and sells the fruit orchard that his grandfather planted many years ago. No Jew in that village would have touched the land so shamefully acquired. So the son sold Yahweh's promised land to a Gentile, an unspeakable taboo. And everyone would have hated him for it. By selling that land, he'd have no way to provide for his family in the future and no place to build a home for his children. So that boy cashed out and left town, not thinking about his family or the future. He ruined the family's reputation. And as we know, in the distant land, he squandered all the money. Easy come, easy go. To make ends meet, the boy found himself eating with the pigs. So who was he working for? Not a Jewish family, right? Not very kosher to keep pigs if you're a Jew. So it must have been a, a Gentile family. And they treated him, as they did often with Jews, as the lowest of the low. So he would get the lowest of the low jobs. So he lost all regard as a good Jew and all dignity as a human to just survive. He set out with the hopes of freedom, but landed himself in slavery, scavenging in a pig pen. He finally arrived back home entirely rejected and dejected. His head was hanging low, sullied in shame. He was covered in pig filth. The defilement covered him from head to toe, and his clothes were hardly recognisable. Even worse, he was empty-handed. Everybody in this part of the world knows you always return home with presents for the whole family. Returning empty-handed is humiliating, a sign of weakness. The entire village entirely, uh, eagerly awaited his return, not to welcome him, but to, for, to perform the cut-off ceremony. One of the ancient traditions dictated that if a villager married an immoral woman or sold land to a Gentile, the village would smash a clay pot before him and then declare, away from us, you have nothing to do with us, you are cut off. The village wanted to forever ratify his shame, publicly and completely. The crowd surrounded the younger sons, the youngest son screaming insults of scorn. So this isn't just the father looking and running down and going, oh, hi, boy, come back. Here's a ring on your finger. Here's the robe on your back. There's much more to this story. Just then, the father sprinted through the village, yelling, my son, my son. Everybody watched in shock. Everybody's eyes were on the father now, not the son. An old man running? The father's garment was flying in the wind, so his rear end was exposed publicly. See why I like this book, can't you? Respected men moved nobly. They let others approach them as a gesture of their status. It's much bigger than just a guy running down the road. The father 
Bear hugs his long-lost son with pure delight and ecstasy. He got pig filth all over himself. The father absorbed the shame with his own body. The father endured that shame to reconcile him. The son stood paralyzed by his father's radical love, like a little boy bear-hugged by an enthusiastic grandmother. He stood in his father's arms with the entire village looking on in shock. He left the far country with a plan to sweet-talk his way into a servant's job, thinking he could work for 20 to 30 years to save money and repurchase the land and restore his name. He knew he was no longer worthy to be the father's son, or so he thought. The father stepped back, looked at the boy, and then instructed his servants to cover his son's filthy body with a robe. Not any robe. The ceremonial robe that he wore at feasts. The signet ring. What does a signet ring represent? His sonship. He has the authority to speak on the father's name and to buy and sell on, in his name. And he put sandals on his feet. The father clothed the boy with honor. His shame was covered. The father acted as if nothing ever happened. Without saying a word, he restored his son. More significant for communicating a new status than the new clothes was the magnificent feast. The father butchered a fattened calf and invited the entire village to celebrate with music and dancing all night long. The clay pot the village was going to use for the cut-off ceremony was used to serve wine to all the guests. Bear with me, you don't have to agree with me, but I just love the story and the way it's written. Shame was removed and honour was restored. You see, he found his lost son. His dead son had come alive. And all knew that the son was now worthy of the family name. The dishonoured was honoured. Nothing could be clearer. The father absorbed the shame and restored the family relationship. I love that story. Now, put yourself in that place where the father runs to you and covers you. See, it's not your identity that people are seeing, it's his. So when you stand in Sainsbury's and you see that lady in front of you with a back that's hurting, and you speak, you speak on his behalf, not yours. It's his reputation that's at stake, not yours. But we live in fear because of what people might think. I want to challenge you this morning. It's much more exciting than you think, being a Christian in 2020. And, and I hear this a lot from God, and he uses this, this expression that I enjoy. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is preparation for him to come back in a big way. We were talking the other day at a Transforming Essex meeting. We talked about Jaywick. Ever been to Jaywick? On the coast out by Clacton? Sounds wonderful. Oh, no, it's not. It really is not wonderful. It's really tough. So we should be moving to Jaywick. We should be the people that are the solution. Diane's freaking out now. (laughs) 
If we believe that we're going to transform Essex, you can't do it by sitting in a pastoral meeting going, well, we've got to do something about that, haven't we? Trevor Phillips on the TV the other day, he was on the Question Time thing, and they were talking about knife crime, and you've had some recently here. Knife crime. What are we going to do about it? And people were all saying, we haven't got enough police on the streets. And Trevor Phillips said, very wisely, we don't need more police on the streets. You'll never stop knife crime until you find out why they're doing it. Why are they doing it? Because they've lost their way. They live in gangs, not in families. Gangs are not families. Gangs like to tell people that they're families, but they're not. They're run by overlords, and their whole thing is corrupt. But like every counterfeit, they find something that looks okay, and they base everything on it. We've got to get under the skin of this thing. That's why this is a base camp. And that's why you will find people coming here. They don't know why, because God is telling them to come. They won't know why, but they will begin to be the catalyst to change things. See, you can't change things. Roy and I, we've lived our lives in the innocence of the world. We've not been involved in any of that, as far as I know. He says, wondering? Yeah, no, no. But you see what I mean? We live in splendid isolation, don't we? Martin's probably closer to it than most because he's been out on the street overnight. And he'll see what happens. Are we going to be part of the solution? Did God run to us and cover our shame and give us a signet ring so we can operate in his world, the supernatural world, so that we can just come to church and be comfy? I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. So I challenge you this morning. I challenge you. Now, don't do it in your own strength. You'll never get there. What you need to do right now is to close your eyes and talk to God about this. What am I going to do? What dreams have I got that of the, where the bubble has popped? What thoughts have I had over the years and wondered whether it's possible? Do we believe that everything is possible with God? So we're going to spend a moment or two. I want to play a song. Um, it's by a guy called John Thurlow. And it's called Mighty Hand. Um, and it basically it talks about... Uh, I'll, I'll read you the, the script um, just so you know what it, what it is. I don't want you to learn the words... I just want you to hear it and let it uh, marinate in you while we have a ministry time. Okay, So this will be a moment where you can come up for prayer, for anything you like. Um, we got a ministry team, Pete? Does that kind of happen? If I go, ministry team, come up, they all come? No, okay. So, Yes, we do. Debbie's one of them. Yeah, come on. So um, here's the words. Your blood speaks a better word. Your love speaks a better word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where are your accusers now? Where are your accusers now? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you are the God who saves, deliverer, 
your name. You see, you put the ring upon my finger. You put the robe upon my back. You throw your arms around me and say, you are my son, my daughter. Don't forget. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You put the ring upon my finger. You put the robe upon my back. You throw your arms around me and you say, you are my son, my daughter. Don't forget. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right, play that song and we'll crack on from there, shall we?